welcome to Winner Take All, where we talk about the constant battle between large tech monopolies, traditional incumbents, and a cratering stock market. I'm joined by <laughs> Nick Johnson, co-author with me on the uh, book, Modern Monopolies. First topic for today is this beautiful little website. You know, I, I could have built this website in about four hours. Squarespace? <laughs> yeah, justwalkout.com. You can all go check it out. Technology by Amazon. Uh, it's basically as simple as one, two, three. Enter with a credit card, shop, and just walk out. This is the Amazon Go technology that they're now saying, hey, other retailers, come license this from us. And six months ago, we had a crystal ball. And um, this is what this is what our crystal ball predicted. What has been reported is that Amazon is now approaching certain retailers to license this technology. This is the last piece of data that Amazon doesn't have access to. What am I selling in my store? But if I don't have a competitive solution, I'm going to be in big trouble. Predicted it exactly correct. August of 2019. With the show, this show only started in July, so. You know, pretty much right away, that crystal ball is just cranking out wildly accurate predictions that Amazon Go, the tech that Nick was talking about, which lets you walk into a store, an Amazon store, pick stuff off the shelf and just walk out, hence the name of this website, that they were going to open this up to other retailers. Our friend Ben Thompson, Stratechery, did not agree with this opinion and thought that they would not do this. Um, I don't know why, because to me, it seemed very obvious that Amazon doesn't want to be in every industry. Right. Amazon doesn't want to have to stockhold every kind of product. Amazon, Same reason they have a marketplace because they it's the an long tail, model. all kinds of products. Right. They don't want to be in that industry specifically, but they want to own the customer relationship and they want the data. Exactly. And what we've been saying is that there needs to be an Amazon Go, an anti-Amazon Go alliance spearheaded by one of the major credit card companies or say a uh, PayPal to launch an alternative solution to go buy one of the tech startups that has strong OCR image recognition technology. There's actually a number of these players out there. How do you go buy this? How do you go build the alliance around it? There's a bunch of people that don't want just walk out and, and Amazon go to be successful. Namely, oh, every single retailer on the planet. What retailer wants this data to be accessed by Amazon, uh, none of them. But we already have one of the, one taker here, yep. which is Chibo. And it's coming to New York City airports. I don't think many other people are coming to New York City airports anytime soon, but Amazon Go technology is coming to Chibo. Within the next few weeks too. And what Amazon has said is this technology only takes a few weeks to set up. So it, it can be deployed very quickly. Yeah. Uh, March 16th, they're going to launch this. Next week. Next week. There you go. Um, that's Monday, actually. So, yeah, Chibo is going to have this. And guess what? Then Chibo doesn't need to have the same level of staffing. I'm sure they will have more staffing in the beginning when this launches. But eventually, you know, what we've spoken about with this technology is that it's inevitable. Why is it inevitable? Because it fundamentally changes the economics of retail. Um Namely, for two reasons. One, you can you have less labor resources. You don't need to staff, you know, the the checkout aisles uh, as readily anymore. Two, when you think about optimizing your P and L, I have now less square footage spent on cashier lanes and checkout lanes. If you think about a grocery store here in New York City. It is so much space. It can be 10, 15%, sometimes more of the store just for also the checkout. A massive drain on the customer experience. If you've ever been to a Trader Joe's or a Whole Foods or any kind of major grocery store in New York, you're going to be waiting in line yeah. for 20, 30 minutes yeah. sometimes. 20, 30 minutes. The line wraps around the store. They've got someone with a sign that says lines all over here on the other side of the store. And though, big thing for many of these stores, grocery stores, clothing stores, is is this concept of lossage, yep. which could either mean I just took something out of the produce section and I didn't really want this avocado, so I just kind of left it on a shelf and now it goes bad. The grocery store eats that. Um, or theft. I think grocery stores have about 3% of lossage every year. That's just a hard expense. They got to eat that. And given how low margin that business is, 3% is a 
Big, big deal. Very big deal. And now with this technology, if you take it off the shelf, it knows you took it off the shelf. So much harder to steal it. And if you took it off the shelf and you didn't put it back where you got it, that is now considered still that you're you're purchasing it, right? So this is going to help reduce that lossage number. And or so in the future scenario too, maybe they don't make you purchase it, but they can alert someone on the staff to say, hey, this is in the wrong place. Go put it back. Yes. And be much more efficient in terms of the the stocking of the store. That's true. So. I would still charge them, but yes, um, <laughs> it's going to help out on lossage. And so that's why I think this is an, an inevitable future state not just it's a better consumer experience for the consumer, but economically, it's much better it's for deal, the retailer. Right, which I think is the, the key reason you're going to see this adopted faster than most people and in, industry analysts seem to expect is I think once you see that proof in terms of the way it changes the economics of operating a physical store, not to mention you also get a lot more data on customers the way that you know, if I go and shop on any e-commerce website. They have data on everything I do and that you can use that whole customer journey to remarket to me, get me to come back into the store, personalize offers, and basically just optimize that whole customer experience so that I'm much more likely to buy stuff. But you can't do that really in store because a lot of them don't have the data necessary to do it and you're going to get it with this. So there's well, a lot now, of important things. I mean, here. it would be so great if they're like, Alex, come down this aisle. Right. I want you to come down this aisle because I know that if you come down, this, I'm going to sell you some stuff. They, they know I like that dark chocolate, so they're sending me to the dark chocolate yeah, aisle with and said, some, hey, with some uh, twenty percent on top. You know, okay, I'm Game a sucker. Over. Bam. So yeah, you know, it's gonna it's gonna fundamentally change the shopping experience, both for the consumer and the retailer. So I think this is very exciting. I think you could then build actually with the way Amazon could platform this. I don't think is a is maybe there's some product marketplace dynamics here, maybe, but you know where I think the platform is is the development platform to let all these third-party apps be built on top to analyze the data and give intelligence back to the retailer. And integrating into their basically inventory management systems. Inventory and- management. How do, where do you put the products? Or it could be customer experiences that right. go down to me. I think, I think how you open up the data, how you enable experiences, both for the consumer and for the retailer, I think that's where the platform play could come in. Well, you, there's also you have a, a lot of install base on There's this. also a payment platform dynamic to this, where this and will yes. ultimately be a competitor to a MasterCard. You're, right. Visa, you're going to cram down the, the traditional payment platforms also in Plat, like yeah, Visa, MasterCard, Amex. Because now you... You literally are are holding the keys of the consumer wallet and the retailer wallet. Right. And then, yes, you, there's some intermediaries in between, but you're going to have a lot of leverage on them. Right. Let's see who uh, who bites and, and wants to take on Amazon, but someone's got to do it. And quick. So um, next topic. This is as of March 9th. So as of two days ago, this is how... Over the past month, Plat relative to the other indices, QQQ is the NASDAQ 100. Uh, you've got the S&P um, 500 in here. You've got um, some, uh, you know, RYT, which is Invesco's, Fidelity's, FTC, kind of other comparable technology-oriented indices. And basically what you see is that Plat is down the least. Everything's down. Plat's down 14.2%. And then the nearest one is 17.4%. That's the NASDAQ 100. Um, so you've got a pretty... And then the worst one is 19.5%. So we're going to be monitoring this. Uh, you know, We're going to look at it as of today and tomorrow. And we're we're going to be continuously monitoring this. But it is very interesting. It will be very interesting to see how in a, in a state of massive, just broad sell-off, how do platforms fare relative to more traditional businesses right. or even relative to other tech indices? Um, so far, this data point is actually pretty well, um, but we'll see if that holds true or not. Um, okay, next topic here. We've got a bunch of examples that we're going to talk about of um, basically examples of traditional businesses that are exploring how to how to um, embrace new technology business models, 
either through M&A or by building that business out from scratch. Uh, there are within the bucket of M&A, you could buy, you could invest, you could partner. There's a whole slew of things, but we have a number of examples to look at um, how traditional incumbents can explore build versus buy type of models. And we're going to dig into those. The one overarching theme here is around integration. And the concept of integration is I have a lot of competitive advantages locked up inside of my incumbent traditional enterprise. These are intrinsic assets. Some are easier to tap into. Some are harder to tap into. But the whole point of this is I don't want to just go into a a new digital tech business for the sake of it. I have strategic priorities that say, hey, this new business model is an, is an inevitable future state of my industry. I have a lot of competitive advantages. I have a lot of things at stake, both good and bad. I should own this, or at least own a significant piece of this. I don't want to just go use my balance sheet and invest capital. I want to invest capital, um, but I also want to leverage my competitive advantages, right? That's kind of the holy grail. Yes, I'm getting into this new business, either by building from scratch or through some kind of build and buy M&A activity. But the reason I'm able to be, I'm, the reason I'm able to have a much higher chance of success is because I'm successfully tapping into these intrinsic assets. And that's this idea of integrating the traditional business and the separate tech entity. So I want to kind of level set on what that means and how we think about integrating these two things. So if you have, regardless of what path you go down, build from scratch, uh, M&A, there's a couple kind of key fundamental uh, components of, uh, of thinking around this. One is the idea of autonomy and getting the right level of separation from the core business in the new entity. Whether you're building this thing from scratch, whether you're investing or buying a separate company, you need to have this concept of autonomy and that and autonomy can shift but but when the autonomy no longer exists is when the separate business is is at enough scale that it's really to ready to be fully consumed by the traditional business if you accelerate that too quickly or if you bring it inside of the traditional business too fast and the business is not at enough scale or doesn't have enough product market fit then you will most likely stifle that business and lose all of the, or certainly most of the new business model dynamics, right? The business model won't be able to survive or it won't have proven itself enough that the core business is able to actually um, basically meet it halfway or embrace all of the new things that are happening outside of the business. And those things won't be able to persist once inside the traditional business. Am I explaining that well? Yeah. And the, the core thing is separation and independence from the core business, ability to take risks, but also having some kind of connective tissue there so that you can tap into some of those uh, intrinsic advantages, what we call dry powder within the core business that is going to give this new startup or new entity uh, some significant advantages mm-hmm. from that. So let's talk about integration Pre that end state, presumably where, you know, both of these things become one, but when they're separate, right, there's, there's the dynamic of resources, both human resources and capital resources. And then I think there's the idea of um, that intermediary that is helping both of these entities coexist and benefit from each other's existence, Right. And ultimately, the purpose of that is to extract value out of the traditional business and help the separate business be much more successful. Right. right? So, and then, from, and then eventually it starts to go the other way as well. Yes, that's true. Eventually, you can channel the advantages or assets from the new business into the core business. Um, so from a resourcing standpoint, right, the idea is that you want a team of entrepreneurs, they don't have to have been prior entrepreneurs, but you want a team that is in it to win it in the separate new entity, right? Whether you're building that from scratch or you just bought a company or invested in a company, you have a team and their livelihood and their success depends on the success of this new business. 
not of the core business. That means compensation. And that means compensation for long-term alignment, right? I want them to be aligned for the long-term, not short-term quarterly performance. They need different KPIs. Those KPIs should be specific to the business they're working on and their compensation should be tied to those KPIs, not those of the core business. Mm -hmm. Capital. The traditional business is either funding the whole thing or we've seen examples of they're funding the whole thing, but then eventually it gets big enough uh, that you can open it up to other third-party investors. We just saw Waymo Waymo do this. And that can, that you know, Waymo's reason was to kind of bring more financial diligence to how they operate the business with third-party investors now, um, you know, holding the team accountable. And rather than a, a Google blank check, everyone loves a Google blank check, um, but it doesn't last forever, even at Google. And, um, you know, from the other capital side of this is if you bought a company or if you invested in a company, what are those KPIs you know, what's the earnout if you just bought a company? What are the KPIs that that now team needs to achieve to, to, um, to hit, to, to basically get the earnout? Um, or if you're an investor, what are the KPIs where then you could write more checks or you would invest more money into this business, right? So how are you using that capital and aligning that to KPIs that the, tr- that the startup business can achieve? Now, the startup business may be able to achieve those on its own, but... You're probably making assumptions that you're going to be able to tap into assets inside the core business, inside the traditional business to achieve these KPIs. So you want these things to be attainable, but this is where integration comes in. It is very hard to extract value out of the traditional business and do it against the timeline that you thought you were going to be able to do it against and be able to do it as successfully as you had thought initially is what they call integration risk in any big acquisition and the role of that intermediary right how would you describe the role of that intermediary that is kind of helping to balance these two separate organizations well i think you you need to be able to understand and uh view the viewpoint of the core business and say how do they view this other thing you also don't want them to feel like they're the ugly duckling now and there's there's hot new things so it's very much uh, appreciating the value and understanding the value you have in the core business and that this other thing doesn't work without it. And then balancing the cultures between the core business and the new business and making sure that they basically don't tend to view each other as enemies. Example of this gone wrong, actually Apple in its early days, Steve Jobs had the team working on kind of the new uh, computer versus kind of the old standard kind of DOS system. And basically those teams uh, actually used like war metaphors to describe the situation against themselves. And it was like World War II between the two sides. You don't want that. You need these guys to to think they're on the same team, understand what the long-term goal is and how this new business being successful is actually going to help the troops on the other side as well. Uh, and I think the the role of that integrator is to help make sure both sides get the vision, both sides get the value at the end of the day, and that they don't have to worry about interacting with each other directly all the time. Uh, and that the the startup isn't too encumbered by a lot of the process and things that are within the core business, uh, but that they can still play well together. Yeah. So let's give a couple examples on this, this kind of intermediary, this uh, this uh, middle middle layer. It's helping to filter out uh, presumably what would be a myriad of requests that are going to come from the traditional business. Right. Which is good. You want the traditional business to be excited, but there's a bunch of different business units and they probably all have a bunch of questions or ideas. And you're probably going to get inundated with a bunch of different requests. This intermediary can help in that case, kind of play bad cop, but nice bad cop where you say, you know, these are really great ideas, but we're going to add them to the list. And hey, new tech startup, tech business, just focus on these two. And there's 98 other ones, but we'll get to those when appropriate, right? And this intermediary can help make sure that this separate entity, this startup entity is focused and focused on the right things and help kind of be that buffer. Going in the other direction, the startup does need things from the traditional business. And the traditional business, they do have quarterly expectations on performance and they do have other jobs. So... This intermediary can help ensure that, A, the traditional business is allocating appropriate dedicated resources uh, 
to deliver upon what the startup needs from the traditional business. And if those dedicated resources, uh, well, if they haven't been allocated, that intermediary needs to have access directly to the top and the top being the CEO of the traditional business to make sure that those resources are being dedicated, not being uh, too distracted on other projects uh, for the core business. A and B, if they're falling behind, usually there's a lot of dependencies, right? It's not just one business unit. You might need, you know, this business unit needs these things from that business unit and they need stuff from that business unit and yikes. Now I need all these people working together. How is, you know, this intermediary can help move across multiple different departments in the traditional business, help ensure that they're all working in tandem, help hold them accountable. And ultimately, if things aren't getting done or if, if there are, say, legal concerns that are holding things up or there are just different dependencies here that are not getting broken down, you have access to the executive team and the CEO, if need be, to ensure that everyone knows this is a huge priority. Um, that has a huge impact just in and of itself. And if that doesn't work, then and there are certain dependencies that just are not getting solved and it's really putting things at jeopardy, then you do have access to the C-suite, to the CEO, to ultimately make sure that that uh, that resources are, are, are operating effectively to get the value down to the startup, right? And all of this goes down to say, if you've set up these KPIs and you've got capital tied to those KPIs, but there's dependencies on the core business to deliver in order to hit those KPIs, and if the core business isn't getting out of its own way to deliver, you can quickly see how this can blow up. Right. That, that on the core business side, that person also needs to make sure that, for example, if you have salespeople, that they don't view this as something alien that's going to destroy their role. This has to, they've got to figure out how do you incentivize those people too, so that they're willing to play ball if necessary with this new kind of entity. So that there's definitely some aligning cultures and incentives that happens and changes within the core business. Uh, and that person is is important in making sure that happens. Yep. You know, other just kind of brass tacks, this intermediary helps to make sure that there are regular meetings on, on either side of the fence and then can prepare for the meetings between the, you know, the meeting of the minds between the both separate entities, help ensure that just that autonomy stays in place, right? That, that culture can kind of coexist. The startup culture can exist. They have their own physical space. These kinds of things actually do make a big difference um, and, uh, and, and, and can help, help uh, balance these two different worlds um, and, uh, and help ensure that they come together properly. So let's look at some examples of this in the wild, both for the good and sometimes for the bad. Uh, let's start out with the bad um, being QVC and Zulily. So, the QVC story is really interesting and actually goes back a number of different levels. But let's start out with the big news, um, which is QVC buys online shopping site Zulily back in August of 2015. Zulily was a public company at the time. Zulily basically rose to fame during the era of like guilt group and was kind of, it really wasn't a true platform in the sense that they didn't have third party sellers contributing inventory into the marketplace, but they were asset light in the sense that they would basically just do drop shipping. So I would post product on the site, you would buy it and then I would order it from the supplier and you'd get it in two or three weeks. That was essentially the Zulily and all these kind of like flash sale sites. They weren't necessarily taking inventory onto their balance sheet, but it also wasn't a kind of open marketplace with third-party sellers in the, in the sense that we talk about the platform model, right? Where you have third-party sellers that are putting inventory into the marketplace. There wasn't really a supply-side network effect going right. on there. Zul- right. Zulily is still making the call to say, I want to buy or I want to resell this product and this product and this product. And then they're managing all of that, right? right? So it's kind of like an asset light linear e-commerce flash sale site, okay? Um, they bought it off of the public market for $2.4 billion. 
Uh, they paid a 49% premium back in August of 2015. Now, um, this is, so Zulily is now owned by QVC, which is actually a John Malone special QVC home shopping network merged together. Boom. Put Zulily into the mix. Kind of, I, I guess where John was going this with this Liberty Interactive was his holding company. They've now kind of split apart the holding company into a few different John Malone specials. This one is now called Curate with a Q. Um, Curate now is basically the parent of QVC, Home Shopping Network, and Zulily. Curate um, blamed their disappointing, you know, results, their revenue decrease um, because of Zulily, interestingly enough, not because of QVC and HSN. Hmm. That's kind of interesting. And I think that was the, basically they were saying Zulily's revenue was actually not growing anymore. Right. And that was what the problem was, and which is a concern. <laughs> here's my little chart on that. So it was going, I mean, they bought it, you can see in 2015, kind of flat a little bit. Then it goes up a little bit uh, in 2017 and now it's kind of peaked in 2018 and now going down the, or this is their active customers, which, you know, which is a close corollary to revenue. But, you know, when you think about the integration efforts of QVC and Zulily, it, it makes sense to a certain degree that if, if you're on QVC, you're watching TV and you want to buy stuff, you should be able to buy digitally, right? You could have bought a just a, a technology product that didn't have its own scale for much less money right. and just use that with your existing demand. But this was a play to go buy a business that already has a lot of demand for $2.4 billion. And I guess I struggle to see, I mean, I guess there are some synergies, but... Well, if you think about it in a digital world, it's kind of a, a similar model. QVC, basically TV, it's like flash sales through TV medium. So I can see the the thinking in terms of, hey, this is a flash sale model digitally. Right. It's very similar to the kinds of things our customers like, probably a little bit younger audience. Uh, so it'll help uh, change the profile of customer and that kind of thing. So I, I think it made sense at a high level, uh, but clearly the execution and the kind of synergy between the two businesses aren't there. I think the, the challenge with uh, with this business is, it, it it it's all over the place, right? There's really no focus. This is the the Zulily site, right? Like, it's kind of it's an e-commerce business, and you know you can just scroll and scroll and scroll. It's it's an e-commerce business. There's no marketplace dynamic on here. I think you need that vertical specific focus if you're going to succeed in e-commerce today, right? This to me is just, it's trying to be an endless aisle of everything, which is kind of going head to head with Amazon. Right. I don't know how you win at that game. Um, you know, I think there's certain product segments that work well on TV shopping sites. Um, it's, it seems like they just kind of hit all the things that worked on QVC. So let's do them also online and you know, hope that works. But it's a very different environment, a very different competitive environment online. And particularly when you're going in such a broad category, basically you end up going head to head with Amazon without the marketplace behind you. That's a very tough thing to pull off successfully. Very tough. That's why I, that's why I like a, a more specialized Vertical right. specific, like a jewelry TV. Right. Jewelry TV has, they sell jewelry on TV. But if you were to do that in a marketplace model online, it's actually niche enough that you could try and go get a lot of the sellers that are selling stuff on, say, an Instagram um, and creating content on Instagram. And how do I now bring that into a vertical specific jewelry marketplace. Right. And it's a population, you need a population that is unique inventory. That's not just commoditized products you find on Amazon. Uh, you need to be able to provide some additional value that an Amazon kind of, you know, commoditized pack and ship model doesn't serve well. And you need to be able to cater to a customer type that has some kind of, uh, you know, specific cultural passion, like things like sneakers or shoes or a kind of specific customer type 
that isn't catered too well by the Amazon model. And if you're not, then it's very hard because at the end of the day, that's who you're competing with. And it's hard to do that without differentiation. Right. And when you look at the competitive advantages of a QVC HSN, or in this case, jewelry TV, right? You say, okay, I can bring demand to the separate business from people watching TV and then go to the website. Right. And now they can see products of what's on TV, but they could also see products from third-party sellers. And it works in the other direction as well. If you get a third-party seller, you can give them demand on the site, but you could also then start to push some of their stuff on TV. Right. They've also have... That makes sense. Shipping if you have supply the right chain focus. and that kind of stuff, because a lot of their products are you order them and they ship them to you. So they definitely have some supply chain advantages they could bring and scale that they could bring to a business like this. Mm-hmm. So there's definitely some, there's definitely meat there, uh, but it clearly hasn't worked. Right. So yeah, I just think it's, it's not focused and, and they were buying such a big business that, that it just, that, you know, the market was not in the right direction, despite whatever integration you want to do, which still seems a little wonky because it's all disparate brands. Um, it's going to be, that's going to be tough. So in, um, the next one here is Golf Channel buying Golf Now in 2008 um, for about $40 million. So honestly, this was a genius decision. I don't know whose decision it was to go buy this business, but it was genius. Um, Golf Now lets you book tee times at public golf courses. So it's a marketplace for tee times. And whenever you're watching Golf Channel, what's the integration here of of capturing that latent demand? The integration is, boom, you get a bunch of ads that say, hey, you like golf. Why don't you go book a tee time at Golf Now? And so that tapping into that demand channel works beautifully. Also, you know, similar to what we're talking about with uh, with with the QVC type integrations, right? right. So the, the demand here is very focused, very focused, and it's a very specific you know action that you can go take based on that. Like, hey, I like golf. I'm watching golf. I want to go play golf. Yes, very specific, vertical specific marketplace. Boom, golf now. Um, they've done very very well on this acquisition, uh, and they've now doubled down on it. And they actually, this is Comcast, which owns NBC. And it's all kind of under the NBC Sports brand. NBC Sports acquires Easy Links Golf, um, which was the number two competitor. I think a distant number two competitor, but still the number two competitor nonetheless. Now, what do you see? You see that platform uh, just consolidation, that winner-take-all dynamic, where you have the number one player effectively using the balance sheet of the traditional business, Comcast, pretty pretty nice balance sheet, buying Easy Links. Um, Easy Links had... I think an affiliation with the PGA. Yep. And, uh, but ultimately was still lagging. And now, um, Golf Channel via Golf Now just has swallowed up the whole industry. And they're easily the dominant winner take all player in the market. I think, I think that it's interesting or instructive that the PGA partnership didn't work quite as well as the Comcast one because they didn't have as much. Sure, they're the PGA, but they don't have as much kind of digital mm-hmm. demand mm-hmm. Uh, as a golf channel would from you know, people watching TV, people using their apps, people reading their website. Uh, so that, that, that digital demand that can funnel into the marketplace is key, whereas the PGA has events and these kind of things. There's not as natural an extension to go from that to yep. booking tee times. Digital demand, it's a great, digital demand is so key. Even if, if you have analog demand, that's great. But then, then the integration question is, how do I turn the analog demand into digital demand? Because if I'm doing a marketplace or if I'm doing a platform, it's by definition digital. Right. So it doesn't help me if there's no semi-efficient or semi-seamless way to turn the analog demand into digital demand. Otherwise, it, that's actually not a competitive advantage I can tap into. But it is a good example of the build, right? Of, of, of how do you kind of build internal tools, the build and buy model? How can you build internal tools to tap into the demand? Either it's digital or you're turning the analog into digital demand. Um, this one is another great example of a build from scratch model. So Ping On is a massive insurance company. They do PNC insurance and they do health insurance in Asia, namely China. Ping on 
launched from scratch a business called Good Doctor. That's the translated Chinese word um, back in 2015. And uh, they, in, in a very short period of time, it IPO'd in 2018. So in about three years, it IPO'd. Um, today, it is valued at $75 billion. And by the way, that is today. So even with all the things happening with the coronavirus, the stock has actually done very well. <laughs> it's only down 10% off its peak uh, from February 21st. So it's actually going up. So this is a marketplace for healthcare services in China and a variety of other things, which we're going to talk and, about. And not just not just sort of telemedicine as the typical ones you often see in the U.S., but also in-person services and specialist appointments and all kinds of things. It's basically this whole health ecosystem, which, as you can imagine, when healthcare was uh, very much in demand in China over the last few months, it was actually went up about 20, business. 30 percent right. stock did. Um, massive company, a, a fantastic example of a traditional business leveraging its advantages to go spin out a new platform business. What are some of Pingon's advantages? Oh, well, they have demand in a bottle because they're the insurance company. They're the payer. They're the health insurance payer. They have access to supply, all of the third-party uh, doctors, physicians, nurses, et cetera. In network or you know, the same kind of system we have here. Yep. So- you know, what they did initially is so within within about a year of launching, they had 77 million registered users and they were delivering 250,000 consultations a day. Yep. Uh, they had a thousand full time medical professionals and 50,000 doctors uh, within the, the the network of different third party providers. Um. It is truly phenomenal, I think, the growth story of this business. Before going public, they raised a few billion dollars or they raised a few hundred million dollars in capital. uh, And so they opened this up to third party investors as it was getting scale and and aggressive scale. I've got the the charts here. So they raised about nine hundred million dollars before going public. Um, And you can see here they so they raised five hundred million dollars initially. And then they raised another $400 million uh, with with SoftBank in their Series B in 2017. So they launched 2015, $500 million, basically a year later in 2016. And um, and then uh, they, they raised $400 million and then they went public. It's a great story. Not only, so this is a marketplace for in-person doctor visits. This is a marketplace for telemedicine, for remote uh, doctor and nurse consultations. And then also what Ping on uh, Good Doctor did is, um, this is their little strategy. We, had a, we have a good write-up on the Applico blog about this. But you can see here them unifying, so it's a one-stop system for medical services. That's the second from the left uh, bucket here. That's both in-person and uh, telemedicine, healthcare information, that's the bucket all the way on the left. So they centralized the EHR. They centralized all the data and said, you know, we're, we're going to have all these third-party service providers. These people aren't on ping on good doctor's balance sheet. Um, these are third-party service providers, but they're unifying the medical record. And as we've talked about on the show, that is so difficult to do in the United States because of these, these terrible incumbents, namely Epic. Uh, preventing this from or trying to prevent this from happening, but it is thanks to the tech monopolies. But they've unified the tech, the 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 EHR to now make that easily accessible by all the other third party service providers on the Good Doctor ecosystem. They also had over one hundred sixty thousand products of different drugs and health and medical supplies. So it's also a product marketplace as well. And then they have the health plan coming from Pingon. They might have opened that up since then. I'm not really sure, but they had 160,000 products that they were selling within 18 months uh, that they had channeled into this, right? And that's also that product marketplace dynamic. So, um, it's such a great example of the build from scratch model. But they were very early to do this. There was other tech competitors. There still are. Uh, Tencent, Tencent backed a competitor called Wahow. Sorry. I butchered it, I know. But um, 
But clearly, you know, you have to be early on to be able to do this. And you have to be very nimble to be able to do this. You have to be able to take risks. You have to be able to fund the business. So from the integration standpoint, you really have to clear a lot of those roadblocks out of the way much more aggressively than if you're going to go and do an investment or an acquisition. Right. Because you don't have the time. You can't have any of these. You have a much lower margin for error on any missteps of saying, hey, can I get access to the customers in the ping on health insurance business? Hey, can I get access to the service providers in the ping on traditional health insurance business, right? How are claims and money going to flow through the business? Hey, you know, the reimbursement and the copay and the business model of insurance needs to be thought of differently in a marketplace like this, where you can have much more transparency around price and rates than the traditional health insurance business. So you need to have a lot of hands-on involvement from the executive team from the C-suite and down, and to make sure that you're opening up these intrinsic assets inside of Ping On if you're going to be able to execute on the build-from-scratch model. Net-net, it's much more accretive, and you can build a lot more enterprise value, and you can own the business outright, but it is riskier, and you got to get these things right. They did it, they pulled it off, and it's a huge win that, that I don't think many people really talk about. Anything else we would talk about here? Hang on. I think that's a pretty good summary. It's a great, great model. Um, let's talk about Sotheby's. So Sotheby's is interesting. Sotheby's in 2019 was taken over uh, by Patrick Drahi, a European billionaire, loves art, bought Sotheby's. This happened before Platt launched, but Sotheby's would have been in Platt. Right. It actually would have been the, is it the oldest, was it the oldest stock on, on, in the New York Stock Exchange? Something like that. Got to be up there. <laughs> it's like from the 1800s. I think it was the oldest or one of the oldest companies in the stock exchange, in the New York Stock Exchange. And it, it was acquired. It would have been in Platt. It's a product marketplace. Um, and, uh, and so, so Patrick Jahi acquired them. Now, this was in 2019 summer. However, Feb 2018, so about a year and a half, 15 months prior, Sotheby's acquired Viet.com. Viet.com is a consignment marketplace, a product marketplace for art. Um, but the business model is different, right? This is purely a technology-driven marketplace as opposed to Sotheby's at that time, their business was much more in person. They've, they have now been shifting to try and do things more digitally. But the point is, how could you have a marketplace, a, a technology-driven marketplace for higher-end art items? Not, not as high-end as what Sotheby's is doing you know, in person, right. but there's definitely a, 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 a part of the market that is not totally at the bottom, but it's not totally at the top. There, there's a lot of room between uh, a Picasso and what, yeah, what you'd buy at a... a- a target. <laughs> yep. And, and Viet's, one of Viet's main differentiators was that they would actually d- have a team, a dispatch, a network of uh, kind of curators who would go and verify the validity of these products right. um, before they could be sold on Viet.com. So they still had a high threshold for quality, but it's a very different way to, from a rules and standards standpoint, very different way to solve for quality than how Sotheby's traditional business would solve for quality, right? And I essentially, it's a much less expensive way to solve for quality, right. which is needed if you're going to be selling, um, uh, you know, pri- items that have a, a lower price tag associated with them. You can't have as much cost associated with these. So uh, Viet, funding-wise, raised about $7 million before it was acquired. <clears throat> it was started in 2013. <clears throat> Presumably, Sotheby's had had some relationship with Viet before making the acquisition. I don't think it was a massive acquisition. The price was not disclosed. I'll show you here on our on our little chart. Undisclosed price in 2018. So it's kind of like Sotheby's saying, "Hey, this is a, a business model very similar to our existing business model, but it's more downstream." 
So what have they done since acquiring Viet? Um, it is now called Sotheby's Home. So if this is Sotheby's.com, which it is, what is that? How do you tap into that digital demand? They've got a little button here that says Sotheby's Home. Okay, that's one integration. This goes to a separate URL. So they have not integrated the core infrastructure of Viet into Sotheby's. That makes sense to me. That's a huge right. integration thing. The, fir the first thing was, let's put the brand name on it. Let's acquire it. Let's start the integration. Then let's put the brand name on it. Yep. And then the next step would be put these two things exactly together. Mm-hmm. So, so now they have, they're channeling some demand from Sotheby's.com to Sotheby's home. It's the kind of, you know, cheaper version of this, basically. It's right. the purely online model of this. And a lot of this stays the same, right? You can still sell through Sotheby's home. You know, they talk about it here, a new way to buy and sell furniture. Right. It's a marketplace. Consign, you know, how it works, all this kind of stuff. Now, I think when let's let's look at this from a resourcing standpoint. So who is actually running this business? That's where it kind of gets a little more interesting. So this guy, Stefan Pepe, uh, he is a tech entrepreneur tech operator let's say and on the website he is listed as the ceo um it's interesting though is so he's not one of the founders right these are the three founders elizabeth Luis, and rachel they bought this in 2018 the founders are no longer there it's been roughly two years uh, i don't know exactly when or how long those founders stuck around but you definitely want to make sure that the founders are sticking around during the transition process. They will probably have some point where they want to exit um, unless you can keep, unless you can figure out how to give them more responsibility, typically within the traditional business, right? So we've seen Walmart do this where uh, Mark, the founder of Jet.com, now runs all of Walmart e-commerce, right? So he isn't just running Jet.com. They've, they've kind of slowly shuttered jet.com as, as they've taken more of that inside of walmart.com. But you're giving that founder more responsibility to run a bigger division or a bigger part of the traditional business. Doesn't seem like that was done here. They've kept this as a standalone entity and they've brought in a separate CEO. The interesting thing about this is he doesn't list Sotheby's home on his LinkedIn, Stefan. So. That's kind of bizarre. It's not here. I don't know. I can't make any sense of it. But it says he's right here. I don't know. Does that mean there's trouble going on here? Potentially. I don't even know why it's not even on the LinkedIn. So there's no really other indicator about how the integration is going. Um, but strategically, this makes sense to me. Uh, it makes sense to me to go downstream. It, it makes sense to me to um, have a relatively small acquisition. I think, you know, the execution of the integration, that the devil's in the details. But it seems like there could be some some troubles here from a human resource, from a from a management standpoint, which can make all the difference in whether or not the business is continuing to be run successfully, to tap into those advantages from the core business and so on and so forth. Um, not, I don't really have much more information on it, but it's very key to get those uh, that management tra transition plan and earn out and that whole stuff uh, really dialed in. Last one here is about Walmart. So uh, we've you know we had spoken about on the integration side. Once the thing can get to scale, then you can bring it more closely into the core business, right? So Walmart grocery is a good example of this, where Walmart launched the grocery business where you can, you know, pick up your groceries in store or get them delivered. Or now you can get them delivered into yep. your home. And we've talked a lot about how that was going very, very well for Walmart. Something that Mark was also overseeing at Walmart, driving that, um, getting that capturing again, turning that analog demand into digital demand. Hey, I'm going to go into Walmart and get my groceries. Oh, now they're going to give me an app. to get my groceries already picked out for me in a bag and I just go pick up the bag and I don't need to shop in Walmart. Oh, that's wonderful. Oh, now I can get those groceries just delivered to my house. Oh, wonderful. 
all of that was driven by a completely separate experience. So again, from an integration into Walmart's core infrastructure, it was just going to take too long and they needed to move much faster and they need to fail fast and keep that iterative type of uh, product development lifecycle going. And if they were going to go directly into the walmart.com, the Walmart main app experience, they were just going to be able to, they were going to move too slowly, right? That Walmart app needs to cater to everyone and everything and the whole slew of product catalog of Walmart, which is much bigger and has other competing priorities than just grocery. Right. And if you're doing it in a separate app too, you could also launch Walmart grocery in a few locations first and then spread it out over time. That's much harder to do if it's just the Walmart app. Yes. And that's something that everyone can see. Exactly. That geographical dynamic. It's a great point. So Walmart grocery has been making steady headway. And just last week, now they've said that, okay, we are now basically ready. Walmart grocery has grown up. It's got its big boy pants on. And now we can bring it into the Walmart main app, right? So again, it's a matter of just kind of managing that separation and figuring out how far away does this thing need to be from the core business? How can I still tap in, right? I guarantee you, I haven't used it, but I guarantee you Walmart was doing similar things that we saw with Sotheby's, right? Where they're they're still giving you buttons in those main experiences to go over to the Walmart grocery app, but it's still living in a separate experience. What we've seen on Amazon is that once you do integrate into the core experience, you see a huge jump in demand. So ultimately, you do want to have one unified experience where you're channeling everyone. This is what we saw with Amazon Supply and then Amazon relaunching into Amazon Business, whereas now on Amazon.com domain. You do eventually want to have it be unified. But the question is, over what period of time and how fast or slow do you do that you don't want to do it too quickly, again, where you basically um, stifle the, the, the startup business before it's ready to, for the prime time. But once it is ready and once you can put it into prime time, you will see a huge lift in demand by integrating it into that traditional main digital uh, experience, in this case, Walmart's main app. So that's it for us today on Winner Take All. Thank you very much for joining us. And we will talk to you next week.